Welcome to Practical Christian Living. When it comes to Jesus, he goes into the veil before us. Verse 20 of chapter 6 says, and he sprinkles the blood there and he represents me. And now I have a relationship with God, not based on the blood of bulls and goats, but based on the blood of the lamb. And I have a priest. It's one mediator between us and God. And that is the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our high priest. He made it possible for us to have a relationship with God, the creator of the universe. Jesus is also our defender. He's our advocate. He goes to the Father on our behalf. Jesus is the only priest we will ever need. With more on Jesus as our high priest out of Hebrews chapter 7, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we want to thank you. Lord, we really are blessed to be here. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. And we look to you to teach us. Your word runs deep. And uh, we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, the study today is called, Let Me Introduce You to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is one of the most mysterious people in all of the pages of Scripture. He comes out of nowhere and then he goes away. And then there's one reference to him in the book of Psalms. And then all of a sudden, the writer of the Hebrews is talking a lot about Melchizedek. And I want to say that he is also one of the most controversial people in the Bible. There's all kinds of people that have all kinds of ideas as to who Melchizedek was. One of the strangest that I heard is that Melchizedek was an alien that came to speak to mankind. I can be sure and confident in telling you that Melchizedek is not from Mars. He's not from Venus. He's not from some others. You know, he's not an alien. The main controversy over Melchizedek is whether or not Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Now, some might think, well, that's really weird that he would appear in bodily form, but it happened not once. It happened several times in the Old Testament. You remember that God showed up and wrestled Jacob all night long. Now, that's kind of weird, but it happened. And you remember that the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, who, who, me, mighty man of valor. You remember that the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham at the tent of his door. So it isn't shocking to us or, or out of the biblical norm that Melchizedek would be God or Jesus showing up uh, in the form of Melchizedek. And I lean towards that, by the way. Uh, we won't get very far in this study before you see that I lean that way. The other side says that, that he is a type of Jesus, that Melchizedek was a real person who was a type of Jesus and therefore shared many of the same things with Jesus. Well, I want to guarantee you that before you leave this place today, that you will know that Melchizedek is Jesus or he is a type of Jesus. In other words, I'm not going to solve it for you today. You get to decide. In fact, I listened to Pat Lazovich as he's the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Sierra Vista. I listened to his study on this and I learned that he leans the other way. And that amazes me because Pat's usually right. The fact that he's wrong is just like shocking to me. Usually me and Pat see things really the same, but he leans towards him being a type. I lean towards him actually being God and you'll see that I'm probably right. And I will throw in the probably there. Now, uh, chapter seven, let me just talk about this chapter for a minute. And we'll get into Melchizedek. Chapter seven in the book of Hebrews is the theme chapter for the book. 
If you have a desire to understand the book of Hebrews, and I was thinking about that this week, out of all the Christians in the world, what percentage do you think has a really good understanding of Hebrews? I would think it would be very small, but we have an opportunity this week and next week to really grasp the, the theme and understand the book. The book of Hebrews is all about a priest. A priest is someone that represents you to God. And listen, Christian, you have a priest. Now, some of you guys here may be Catholic. Go, oh, yes, I do. It's father, you know, so-and-so. No, you have a high priest. You have a priest who is your champion, who is your redeemer, who has gone to God for you because that's what a priest did. They represented the people to God. And so the priest would have to, the earthly priest would have to make a sacrifice for his own sin. And then he would take the blood of bulls and goats and he would go behind the veil and he would sprinkle the blood there. And when the blood was sprinkled, God would look and he would develop a relationship with you based upon what that priest did. If that priest did not do that, if you didn't give those sacrifices, your sins wouldn't be covered and God could not have that relationship with you. It was a relationship, but it was weak in that it could only cover your sin. But when it comes to Jesus, he goes into the veil before us. Verse 20 of chapter six says, and he sprinkles the blood there and he represents me. And now I have a relationship with God, not based on the blood of bulls and goats, but based on the blood of the lamb. And I have a priest. It's one mediator between us and God. And that is the man, Jesus Christ, who has become my priest. He's become your priest. And the book of Hebrews says, don't go back to this earthly priest. Why would you go back to an earthly priest when you have the priest who now represents you continually forever? Jesus is a priest forever, the Bible says, according to the order of Melchizedek. There is never a, a need to have another one. He is all the priest that you need. Now, Melchizedek is a priest of God that is not a Levite. You remember that under the law, it was the Levites that had the priesthood. And Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And so when the early church began to talk about Jesus being the priest, the early Jews would say, ah, that's not right. You got to be of the tribe of Levi, but Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And he would say, no, the priesthood, according to Melchizedek, is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. And here was his argument. You ready for this? Because Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek and in Abraham's genes was Levi. Or we could say Levi was in his genes. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw that out there. But that's exactly the argument. The argument is that in the loins of Abraham, as Abraham stood in front of Melchizedek and gave a tenth to him, that in, because, because Levi would come from Abraham eventually, that he actually gave tithes to Melchizedek so that Melchizedek is superior to Levi. Now, that's where this whole chapter is going. But before we get there, we need to be introduced to who this Melchizedek is. And so we pick it up in verse one of chapter seven. It says, for this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. The name Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words. The first word is the beginning in the English spelling of the Hebrew word. It's M-E-L-E-K. So we get the beginning of Melchizedek from that. And that word means king. 
The second word in Melchizedek's name means righteousness. Tzedek is how it would be pronounced, and it means righteousness. So the name Melchizedek, if you're reading it in the Hebrew, you would read, and then the king of righteousness came out and met him. That is literally his name in Hebrew. Now, I point that out because the Bible tells us that in the millennial, Jesus will have the name King of Righteousness. In other words, in the millennial kingdom, we are going to call Jesus Melchizedek. Immediately, you can see why I begin to lean towards Melchizedek showing up and being an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Who else could fulfill that? Who else could bear the name Melchizedek? Could a man living back in those days bear the name King of Righteousness? I don't even know that it would be possible. But it says, for this Melchizedek, King of Salem and high priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. You and I are going to go back in a moment to Genesis and we're going to look at the slaughter of the kings. So we're going to get an idea of what he's talking about here. And the kings and blessed him. That is Melchizedek blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. He's setting up to show that Levi is inferior to Melchizedek because he gave a tithe to all, first being translated king of righteousness. That's the name Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem. Now, some people say that this word Salem is Jerusalem and that Melchizedek was a king of Jerusalem. Uh, but Jerusalem is under Gentile control during the life of Abraham, not Israeli control. And it goes on to say here, meaning king of peace. The name Salome is connected to the word Shalom, which is peace in Hebrew. So he is the king of peace. And Jesus, of course, is the prince of peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Jesus is the king of righteousness and the prince of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Well, without father, without mother, without beginning of days and without end of days, there's only one guy who could fulfill that. The Bible says in Micah 5.2 of Bethlehem, O you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the villages of Israel, out of you will come a ruler who will rule my people, whose days shall be from everlasting. There's no one else who has no beginning of days and no end of days. We have been given eternal life and we do not have the end of days, but we had a beginning. The first day of our life, we were slapped and screamed. That's how our lives began. Not too good of a way to start it, but that was the start of our lives. It was at least the first, the first day that we were breathing. He'd had no beginning of days. But then it says in verse three, like the son of God. And that word like creates a problem. It creates some doubt. Why doesn't it say he is the son of God? It says he's like the son of God. And sometimes when I find a word that I don't quite know what the Greek word means, like here in Hebrews, I, I go and I look other places in the Bible where it's used, hoping that context will give me some insight on the word. So I did that, only it didn't help because this is the only place in the Bible this word like is used. Usually you look up a word and you find it's used 25 other times or sometimes hundreds of other times. I looked it up and said this is used one time in the Bible and it's here. So it gives us no help. So I say, I lean strongly towards Melchizedek being Jesus, but because he's made like the son of God, I have a little doubt. All right. So you got to kind of make a decision for yourself. If you lean the other way, lean the other way. It's all right. 
What is important here for us is that he is a priest. What does it say there at the last verse I read? Continually. The end of verse three, he is a priest continually. That's the point. He is always a priest. He doesn't need to be replaced. Now let's go back and look at the slaughter of the kings back in Genesis chapter 14. As you turn back in your Bible, we're going back 2,000 years from where we were. We were already at a book written 2,000 years ago. Now we go back another 2,000 years to 4,000 years ago. And Abraham is moving around the area of Canaan as a sojourner in the land. And he's very wealthy. He's got large flocks and herds of animals. And his nephew, who used to live with him, has also become very wealthy. He's a man by the name of Lot. And Lot and Abraham had to divide because their herds and flocks could no longer live together. And you may remember that Lot looked towards the city of Sodom and then moved his tent as far as the city of Sodom and then moved into the city of Sodom and then was at the city gate of Sodom. He was actually a ruler in the city of Sodom. And the Bible tells us that Lot's righteous heart was vexed day and night as he saw the wickedness in the city. Hey, we live in the world. The, the city of Sodom is a type of the world, by the way. And we live in the world. And sometimes we hear about things that happen or see things that happen. And our hearts are vexed as well. A few months ago, I was listening to the radio and they had some news story that was on there. And they gave TMI, too much information in the story. And all of a sudden, I heard what I didn't want to hear. It was the last thing I wanted to hear. Have you ever had that happen to you? And you go, oh, I wish I would have never have heard that. It's just the awful things that happen here in this world. I think my heart was vexed then, and I think that's what Lot was putting up with. His righteous heart was vexed day and night as he lived there in that city. But what happens when you get too close to the world, when you're a righteous man that lives too close to the world, when the disaster takes place in the world, the disaster envelops you. And so there was a group of five kings that were led by a guy by the name of Chateau Lede Lomar. Now, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he's dead and doesn't care, okay? <laughs> Chateau de Lomar led five kings and attacked the city of Sodom. And he took all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the, the, the grain, whatever else they had for money, and he raided it. And he took the people as slaves and he led them away. I don't know that Abraham would have even have cared about it had Lot not been involved in it. Abraham might have looked at these are five kings from the world. They're attacking the city of Sodom, which is one of the things of this world. And, and I'm just going to leave it alone. But when he learned that his nephew Lot, Lot's wife and Lot's daughters had been taken captive, Abraham got 300 men, servants that were born in his home, and he took out after these five kings. Now, there is no doubt that the 300 and something men that Abraham had with him were smaller forces than the five kings had. And there is no doubt that the five kings had an army that was trained. And had they lined up in battle array against Abraham and his 300 servants, they would have lost. But it is not uncommon that a smaller force using a good strategy overcomes a larger force. There have been many battles throughout history where this has happened. Many of them in the Civil War. Did you know in the Civil War, in the beginning of it, the North had a much larger army than what the South did? And in the battles, they outnumbered them sometimes two to three to one, sometimes even greater. But in the beginning of the war, the South won almost every battle that they fought because of strategy. 
where the North just kind of threw numbers at it. We got all these men. Let's just go at it. Let's just throw the numbers into that battle where the South, because they had less numbers, had to pick and choose and use the typography and the terrain to their advantage. And they did so. And the smaller forces defeated the larger forces for a while. And they kind of had to turn and run and they ended up being overwhelmed by the, by the sheer numbers eventually. Plus Grant got involved and Grant was a little bit general for the North. Anyway, enough of that. Um, so Abraham divides his army into two and goes to their camp at night. The kings don't know that he's anywhere around and he attacks them in the middle of the night. That's where we pick it up. This is the slaughter of the kings. That's where we pick it up in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 14. It says, he divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Once Abraham's 300 something men attacked from these two directions and got them back on their heels, they just kept pursuing them. Damascus is hundreds of miles away from where the battle took place. When he got them back on his heels, they just took off and kept going. I think Abraham was a little concerned that they might regroup and come back after him again. And so they just continued to pursue him and they scattered them utterly. And so now they're coming back. They have lot with them. There was this great reunion. They have all the gold, the silver, the money, the riches, the wealth of the city of Sodom. And as they're making it back, verse 16 says, so he brought back all of the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after he returned from the defeating Sheder Lomar and the kings who were with him. Now, as he's making his way back in, he comes into this place called the King's Valley. We really don't even know where that valley is. Why is it called the King's Valley? Number one, the king of Sodom meets him there. Number two, as soon as he starts moving towards Sodom, all of a sudden coming on the scene is Melchizedek. And remember, you have the king of Sodom and you have the king of righteousness. The king of Sodom will represent the world. The king of righteousness will represent the most high God. And they are in the valley of the kings. And Melchizedek comes mysteriously on the scene. After it talks about the king of Sodom in verse 17, in verse 18, it says, then Melchizedek. And remember, if you're reading this in Hebrew, it says, then the king of righteousness, the king of Salaam, the king of peace, met him and brought out bread and wine. If you have a pencil with you or a, or a pen or a highlighter, then highlight or underline the bread and the wine in chapter 18. If you don't have a pencil or, or a pen and you're just staring at me right now, point at bread and wine. Because I think that's important. It says that he brings bread and wine, this king of righteousness, this king of peace. And some people just quickly shrug off. You like my shrug? Quickly shrug off. The fact that these are communion elements. But I have a hard time shrugging them off. I'll tell you why. Because of the context. The context is a priest who is a priest forever. And Jesus is a king of righteousness and prince of peace who gives his sacrifice, which is represented to us as bread and wine. In the context of a priest, you find the elements that represent the body of the Lamb of God, the Messiah, who would be given so our sins would be forgiven. I, I think it's a clue as to who he is. 
I think he brings bread and wine to Abraham. And it is a statement of salvation that comes through the sacrifice. It goes on to say here, he was a priest of God most high. Now, what does it mean? He's a priest of God's most high. That means that he represented people between before God for people. My question is what people? If he's the king of Jerusalem, as some suggest, Jerusalem is inhabited at this point by Gentiles. Later on, David will take the city. You remember, Jerusalem doesn't come under Israeli control until David. David is approximately a thousand years after the time of Abraham. That's a long time. So who does he represent? Well, we don't know. If he is a type of Jesus, we have no idea who the people are that Melchizedek represented. If he is Jesus, then the people he represents is you. He is a priest of the Most High, and Jesus, Melchizedek, the King of Righteousness, becomes your champion, your Redeemer, your priest. He is the one that has gone behind the veil for you. Otherwise, you would be lost. You would be lost in your own sin. Now, this Melchizedek is a king and a priest. In the law, you can't be a king and a priest. You can be a king and a prophet. You can be a priest and a prophet, but you can't be a king and a priest. But this is prior to the law, and he is a king and a priest. And then Abraham does something surprising. It says at the end of verse 20, and he gave him a tithe of all. Now a tithe is 10%. He gave him 10% of everything he had. That's a tithe. And so when sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, how much should I give? And by the way, it's always a bad idea to ask a pastor how much you should give, all right? <laughs> how much should you give? And I say, well, how much you got? Just wondering. Or I'm um, asked the question, can I give less than a tithe? Can I tithe less than 10%? Someone asked me. And the answer to that is no. Because if you're going to tithe, you give 10%. But if you choose to give less than 10%, that's your business. The Bible says we are not to give out of constraint. In other words, we aren't to give to God because we have to. We're to give to God because we want to. However, having said that, I think we should give. I think every believer should give to two things. I think, number one, they ought to give to the work of the gospel. We ought to be a part of what God's doing in the gospel reaching a lost and perishing world. And number two, we ought to give to the poor. Now, you might say, I am the poor. People ought to give to me. Well, okay, but you ought to give to the poor because Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And so we want to be those who give. And so when Abraham meets Melchizedek, he takes everything he has, which I take it is all the stuff from Sodom, and he takes all the stuff that he has, and he gives 10% of it to Melchizedek. And now when he leaves, he's 10% lighter than he was before, okay? And so then, well, let's go back up to verse 19, and it says, and he, that is Melchizedek, blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high. I am persuaded, first of all, that God wanted to bless Abraham, God had called Abraham out of his home in Ur in the area of Mesopotamia because he wanted to bring him into the land of Canaan and he wanted to bless him. And I am persuaded that God has called you out of the world, out of Mesopotamia, as it were, so that you could be blessed. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. And I am persuaded that there is a richness in the life lived for Jesus wholeheartedly that you can never find in the world. The world has promises. Follow me, take from me. I'll give you what you want. I'll fulfill your lusts. I'll fulfill your passions. I'll fulfill your desires. I can make you wealthy. I can give you security. I can give you all the fame, the power that you want. 
But here's the thing that you learn about the world. It's all vanity. It presents one thing and gives you another. It is the good old bait and switch. Here's what it offers you. And this is what you get in the end. And there's an emptiness. I call it a dullness when you live for the things of the world. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.